So what is this Babylon? Is it, just, is it an ancient city that, um, has, that, that's nothing more than just an ancient city? It's just famous for its hanging gardens and its, um, its, its beautiful blue-tiled gates, and, but nothing else really. It's just passed into the dust of history. Is Babylon maybe, is it a luxurious whore whose alluring um, curves and pleasures um, many men are un unable to resist? Or is Babylon something more, um, more sinister? Is it codenamed for something more sinister at work in the world? So what is this Babylon? What is the spirit of Babylon? Hmm? Raji took us on a, on a he, he had a good aspect. He had a good look at it last week, talking about you know, the, um, you know, when, when, when nations and groups of things are referred, oh, like referred to as women in the Bible, you know, what does that represent? And he took us through uh, investigating it that way. But I want to take a bit of a different angle today, and I want us to look at the origins of Babylon, the start of it. You know, what, what was it founded on? And we're going to find out a little bit about that this morning. So let's jump into Genesis chapter 10. And, well, I could read from verse 1, but I'm trying to miss out on all these big names. So, so I'll, I think I'll start reading. There's a whole lot of names. This is the generations that come from Noah. This is after the flood. We'll read from verse 5. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. The sons of Ham... Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, the sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabtah, Ramah, and Sabteca. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Erech, Akkad, Kalnia in the land of Shinar. From that he went on into Assyria and built Nineveh and more and more cities as part of his kingdom. So we'll call it quits there. So here we have this post-flood world, yeah, and, and from Noah, everyone's sort of spreading out. They're forming their own little groups and tribes and nations with their own little dialects and whatever, and they're going all over the world. And then we see a few generations down from Noah. Noah's great-grandson, I think, yeah, um, this, this guy called Nimrod pops up and he's the first king-like character, mighty man that's mentioned in the Bible and he goes around founding cities as part of this kingdom beginning with one called Babel and then a whole swag of others. Now it just looks like a normal city that's part of like a kingdom there, founded in some kingdom there until we get over in, verse, in chapter 11 and the Bible picks up this town, Babel, again, or a city, Babel, again. And it also says that the whole earth had one language, which is interesting because in chapter 10, there was lots of little tribes with their own dialects. But now something's happened, and so it's a point in verse, not, in, in verse sorry, chapter 11, okay, everyone's got one language. What's happened between the chapters? Could it be that, you know, this, this kingdom that, uh, that Nimrod founded grew in size and enveloped the whole world into it? And so that through trade and single governmental rule, everyone was sort of conformed to the one language. Maybe. 
I don't know. We're not actually told. That's just my sort of theory. But whatever happens, it's, it's not really important. But the point is that man comes together in this place, in this plain of this land of Shinar. And they've got all these new building technologies that they want to try out. And these, this, this high-tech building gear is bricks and mortar and bitumen. And so what's their plan? Mankind, they all come together in this place, in this, this city of Babel. And what's their plan? They want to one, they want to make a name for themselves, which is in contrast, they want to glorify themselves, which is in contrast to glorifying God. Secondly, they want to um, all just stay in this one giant place. They don't want to spread out, they just want to all come together and hang out together, which is in contrast to what God told man when he made them. You know, he said, go over the face of the earth, inhabit the whole earth. And then three, they want to get up into heaven somewhere. They want to get up in that God's domain and they want to claim level pegging with God. So that's the, the other point that they're wrong on. So we, all know, we know how this story goes, don't we? we um, God comes down. He sees what they're doing. This is not what I want you doing, guys. Different languages for you all. And then spreads them over the whole earth because of that from speaking differently. They can't continue building a structure when they, don't, when they can't communicate. So that's the story of Babel. And it's the beginning of Babylon because Babel is the, um, I think it's the Aramaic word and, and Babylon is the Greek form of that. And because our language, you know, we have a lot of based, we're based pretty much Greek, you know. Um, we have a Greek base to a lot of our words, a lot of our roots come from there. We understand the word Babylon, same place. So, so from these beginnings, we get this picture, okay? What, what was Babel founded on? The, the image of the Babylon, the spirit of Babylon here, is mankind uniting together in rebellion against God. So that's the Babylon spirit that we'll be talking about. Mankind uni- unifying in rebellion against God. Now... Chapter 17, as I said, Raji brought us last week, um, and that was concerned with likening Babylon to a false belief system in the world. Um, chapter 18 this week um, is concerned with Babylon, this great prostitute defiling the governments and the commercial sectors of an evil world. Now, um, in you know, united rebellion against God. And then um, we see God also calling his people out of Babylon, calling his people out of the world before judgment falls. Now, Babylon 2, the audience reading this, when this uh, letter, let's call it, of Revelation was sent around to those churches, it's like a circular letter, or maybe not circular, you know, sent down to these seven churches. Um, When the churches were reading it, who was Babylon? The evil world empire. So for the early church, first century church, it was the Roman Empire. And all through history, God's people, as they've been reading it, it's been... The Babylon has been the, um, the evil worldliness of the time, and as, as it is in, even is for us today, okay? But this picture of Babylon, then this corrupt, uh, you know, government and corrupt economic system will come to its ultimate fruition, ultimate completeness in that final empire united under the Antichrist, okay? So we're all on that same page. And I think that... This chapter 17 that Raji brought us last week and this chapter 18 
is more a uh, sort of magnified uh, or targeted focus on what the bowls of wrath are actually judging in the world that we discussed them in, in chapter 16. So the bowls have happened, but this is the evilness in the world that God was judging because of that. That's my understanding of it. So just before we jump in and we start cruising through uh, chapter 18, a um, little bit of a rough outline for how it goes. Firstly, um, we will see a section where Babylon is condemned at the start of the chapter. And then we hear this um, God calling his, there is a call for God's people to come out of Babylon, to separate themselves from the world. And then we see there's a big section in there where there's a whole lot of weeping and wailing and snot and tears from the uh, kings and the merchants and the shipmasters and everyone who was invested in this Babylon at its downfall. Okay? They're very sad. There's a lot of lamenting there. And then finally, there is a call for us as God's people to rejoice at the downfall of Babylon because we can. So that's the rough outline. If you want a cool little something to go away with this week from, condemnation, separation, lamentation, and celebration. Okay? Are you down with that? So let's jump in and read Revelation chapter 18. We'll just read the first three verses. So after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So, you remember back in the, in the beginning seri- uh, when we were starting this Revelation series, um, whether it was mine or Adrian's, I can't remember, um, we discussed the various roles that Jesus is revealed as as having. So what was the first one when he was ministering to his churches? Do we understand what Jesus' first role as revealed was there? He was the priest ministering to his churches. And then he was shown in that heavenly throne room as the lamb, as though it had been slain. And then he's revealed as for the majority of his book as a judge. And just before he comes back in as the conquering king of kings, Next chapter, all right? And then for the rest on, for the rest of eternity, then he is that king, king of kings and Lord of lords. So this chapter 18 is actually the last chapter of Jesus revealed as judge. So it makes sense that there's a final condemnation, yeah? If he's the judge, end of, end of judging, boom, condemned, okay? So that's what this is. And his judgment is pronounced by this angel, as it says, it's coming out from heaven and he yells with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen. So the end state of Babylon is pronounced. The verdict has been read out. It is time for Babylon to fall. So, why must Babylon fall? It's bad, Nadine, that's right. It's a haunt for all evil and detestable things. So all the nations, everybody, all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of 
of her sexual immorality. Now, if that's not a loaded graphical sentence, then I don't know what is. And it is a little bit squirmy. And so I'm going to try my best to expound on that without treading on all those obvious adults-only landmines that are probably there for me to walk on. So wine is a beautiful thing, yeah? It gladdens the heart. And, and, but like anything, when it is used wrongly, it brings about drunkenness and loss of senses, lowered inhibitions, and then it can lead into like free-fall um, alcoholism. Sex also is a beautiful thing. All right, it's made for sharing between a husband and a wife. But likewise, when it is twisted and it's used outside of its intended context, it, it, it brings emotional scars, it brings loss of commitment and trust, people lose their dignity, um, individual self-respect is gone. And then and, and it can free fall into um, like sexual promiscuity. And then that brings its own swag of problems with different diseases and things. So misused wine and misused sex together, they, they, when, when combined, they form this perfect uh, free-fall. One, abuse of one fuels the other, fuels the other, fuels the other. And next thing we know, adults, you know the story, stop squirming. <laughs> Try and see the meaning here that John is trying to get at with this picture of drunken sexual immorality. Okay? So think of it, the king's... And the leaders of the nations, they are in bed with this evil, all that's evil in the world. The picture here of these is kings is committing immorality with Babylon. It's being one of all wound up and um, tied together, inextricably linked and enjoying all that Babylon, this evil world system, has to give. They're, they're deeply joined with the evil of the world and they're getting all their pleasure from it, which, and which is keeping them in power, all right? And then sin, this, this evil system, is allowed to flourish under their rule. And then likewise, the merchants, the other side of this, this is the economic system, the businesses and the corporations. They have filled their coffers from the power given them by this luxurious whore Babylon. Okay? The evil world system that has allowed them to do the things that they shouldn't, to conduct all their seedy business in all their shady deals and dirty ways for maximum dollars. Right? They love Babylon for letting them do it and they perpetuate its, its, its growth by doing it. So we see this, this picture, this setup here, this, this whole situation is of national leaders and commercial economic systems twisting together, desiring the fullness of unity with their adulterous lover, Babylon, which is giving them, um, and, well, and they're giving themselves over to her completely, obeying her every request in their some sort of inebriated haze full of selfish pleasures, which is in outright rebellion to God. Imagine in this system, corruption and things like that will be rife, all right? All is done in the name of money. Even, even human lives, as we see, we'll read later on in the chapter, is one of, the, um, one of the things being traded by these merchants. Even human lives are worthless and, and just, uh, just a dollar value is put on them. Everything's worthless in the relentless pursuit of the almighty dollar. So this is the world system. This is the setup. This is what God is describing the world system as. 
And this is the world system that is ripe for God's judgment, okay? It's got the crosshairs, it's got, you know, the little laser dot on it, okay? It's, it's in line for destruction. Now, remember back in chapter 11, I think it was, with the seventh trumpet? Yeah, chap- end of chapter 11, where God's kingdom is heralded as having arrived. So, Satan's kingdom now has to fall. You imagine God's mighty war machine rolling in and the front lines of Satan's kingdom just need to be bombarded into the ground and completely bashed down. And that's what God's wrath is being poured out on. It's just this crushing down of the evil world as God's system rolls in. God's kingdom is coming. So Satan's has to fall and his haunt of Babylon is in line for that impending judgment also. These bowls of wrath are poured out on it. Let's read a little bit further. Revelation 18, verse 4. We'll read down to verse 8. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow. (coughs) And mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. So, from this evil system that has, you know, the target of God's wrath on it, we see this voice from heaven. To this, to this world, we hear this voice from heaven, and it says, Come out, come out of her, my people. God here is calling his people to separate from the world and take no part in it, in its its evil practices at all. Now, when when, when God calls for himself a people, there is always a need to separate from the world around you. You remember Abraham, when God called him, Okay, out from his home country, away from his extended family, away from his family home. All right? God called him to a new country where he would make him a new family. He would make a whole new nation out of this dude. All right? And then he set up a series of rules and regulations and stuff, which looks all really weird for us now when we read those. We're just like, why? Why not mix cotton and whatever? You know, whatever atheists, you know, have a crack at us about, you know, these really weird standards. And they are weird by today's standards. But it was at that point to drive an obvious wedge of distinction between his people and the world around them. That's what it was for. And you'll remember also when God calls the, called the Israelites out of Egypt, um, bunch, basically a hopeless nation of enslaved people, he calls them out, frees them, from the world's superpower of slavers. And then he tells them never to go back, even though they wanted to some stages. And even today, all right, we, we as God's people in the church, we're told to separate ourselves from the light, from the world around us, the ungodly world around us. 
and Paul in, in 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 6. Hmm. He likens us actually to the, to the Israelites when he quotes in, from Leviticus. He says, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And then Peter, in a similar fashion, he's also quoting Leviticus when he says, you know, you guys, the church, come out, you know, you be holy as he who called you is holy. That's straight out of Leviticus too. All these references for God's people, Israel, these guys are then applying it to us as the, in the church. So God is holy. He's called his people out to be holy, which is just pretty much that's what holy means, isn't it? To be separate, set apart. So what is holiness? Well, holiness is not one foot in each camp. And holiness is not um, paying lip service to fellow Christians on a Sunday um, after you've been in bed with the world all through the week. The holiness is um, living by God's standards and being distinct from the world around us. So here's the thing though, right? If you try in your own strength to look within you and try your best to work really hard to be more holy, you're going to fail. You're going to fail really hard. It's going to be embarrassing. You're going to do a terrible job at it. You can't do that. All right? All these other religions that tell you work hard, you know, look inside yourself to whatever the universe is telling you to do. All this stuff, no. There's nothing good in you, naturally. You become holy by first acknowledging that there's nothing good in you and turning around and then pursuing a right relationship with God by believing in and trusting in the knowledge of Jesus' death and resurrection. And then, guess what? You become one in, uh, in his chosen race. You become one in his royal priesthood. And you become one in this, get this, holy nation. That's how you become holy. And then, every day, it's you choose to push down your old self, stand on it, and, and keep going forward denying that old self, denying that old flesh under the empowerment of God's Holy Spirit every day, striving to live a separate life from the world around us. Constantly, hourly, man, even minutely sometimes, okay? Putting to death that old nature. That's not you. This is who I am. That's not you. Your old sinful flesh, flesh, put it down, stand on it, keep walking, walk over it, turn your back to it, let it die all through the grace of God. Think about this. You're on a journey, okay? Um, and how far do you actually go in a journey if the whole time you spend just looking back where you've been? Like if you're putting down some serious miles on this journey, are you walking backwards on it? No. You face your destination and you walk towards it. Your back is always towards where you were, what you were. The old past. Yeah, okay, you have an occasional glance back to see how far you've come or you look in your rear vision mirror if you're driving in a car, whatever. And the same applies to your Christian life, okay? Eyes always forward. 
You need to keep your eyes forward, not looking back on that old sinful nature, the old person. Don't dwell on the old person. You're not looking back. You're constantly looking forward to Jesus as God grows and conforms you and moulds you and makes you into an image of his son. That's your Christian life, okay? Stop dwelling on your old self. So if we truly belong to God and he commands us to come out, because what? What does he say? Verse 4. Lest you take part in her sins, in in the sins of Babylon, and be affected by the plagues coming on this evil world. Now, this is probably where I'll mention that there are two streams going on in this passage. All of God's word has these deep uh, multi-levels to it. So there's the surface words, but then there's also these underlying things, that these other truths that are woven through it and things how it's said, these ultimate spiritual meanings. And the words are just not narratives and prophecy and poetry and surface level words. It's not just that, okay? There's lots of levels to it. So if we were to look at this passage in a purely you know, literal future events, kind of like an eschatological interpretation of this, which is just big word for, um, you know, study of end times sort of stuff. If we were to look at it that way, this, is, this probably shows God calling his remaining people on earth to himself right before he sends complete destruction on the earth. And then he returns triumphant. And in, but in a spiritual, let's take the other stream for a little bit, in, in, in a purely spiritual life application or an interpretation of this verse, which is probably how the initial churches would have read it, yeah, and, and this is really the stream that we dive into and we want to do the words of Revelation. It shows God warning us, his people, to separate ourselves from the evil world system, to prevent sin and destruction coming on our own lives. Now, think for a moment, this letter going out to people, these seven churches, we probably resonate the most with the church of Laodicea, yeah? We're, we're pretty comfortable in the Western, Western churches. We've got a lot going on and we're very apathetic towards a lot of things of God. So could you imagine how the church of Laodicea would have felt when they were reading this chapter? And that was, they were comfortable and they had a lot of wealth tied in to the world around them. Those dudes were wealthy. That was a wealthy city. Had a lot of banking there, a lot of trade going on with dyes and different colours, different things, eye salves. And they were so comfortable that they had relaxed to the point of being lukewarm and they were about to be spat out. Now, would they really want to separate from the world around them? When they read this chapter, oh, gee, that's heavy. Is that what they thought? Do they really want to separate? Like, what is the risk for not separating? God has made it clear in verse 4 there. He says, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. So, come with me here. Separation from the world is necessary to stop sinning and incurring the judgment it receives. So, what do I mean by that? What does that even really look like? Let's, let's use this guy called Lot as an example. So, you can read about him in, in, in Genesis 19 if you want later through the week. Um, we don't have time to read it all now, but I'll give you the executive summary. So, Lot is living in Sodom. Sodom is an evil city, 
okay? Sodom is in line for uh, God's judgment. It's a wicked city. These two angels have come, um, you know, to, to find Lot, bring him out and judge this place. And they find Lot sitting in the city gates. Now, yeah, these angels, remember, they've come to judge this joint for all its wickedness. And now in cities of old, the city gates were the place where if anyone was anybody, they were hanging out there. They were doing their business there. They were doing their government stuff there, dealing with trade, you know, doing whatever. City gates was where people hung out. So Lot is found here because he's so invested in this city. Like he's got a lot going on. He's an important man in this city. The angels find him in these city gates. And we know how the rest of the story goes. You know, he invites the angels back to his house. The men in the city then want to... Uh, then they come to his place at night and they want to have sex with these guys. And then he says, no, he goes out to them. He says, no, my brothers, don't do this wicked thing. But then he's calling them his, their brothers. So he's obviously friendly with them in some terms, which is, oh, this whole narrative is just really crazy. And so, yeah, it is. And then Lot offers them his daughters, which is more bent. Um, but, you know, it, it, it just shows, you know, how much he had compromised in this, in this wicked city, living in there, how much it had rubbed off on him. So eventually he flees the city with his wife and his two daughters. His son-in-law stay there. They think the old pecker, the old, the old father-in-law, he's a bit crazy. He's joking. They uh, ignore him. They laugh at him and they stay there. God destroys the Sodom and Gomorrah, okay, with probably what I assume every, pretty much everything that Lot had, except for the stuff that he was probably carrying. And then his wife, she misses her home. She looks back. She's turned into a pillar of salt. So even as they're escaping, Lot's wife is destroyed. And what's the end? Like, how does our story end with Lot? What is he? He's an old pecker living in a cave, getting drunk with his daughters, fathering his grandkids. Like, what an ending. Contrast Lot to Abraham, okay, who didn't throw everything in with the evil cities around him. And we see how much better things worked out for him. Now, thankfully, though, our understanding of, thankfully for Lot, our understanding of him doesn't end there because Peter fills him in a bit more for us. He grabs that blank coloring book that is Lot and he starts coloring it in, giving it some shading, helps filling it out for us. So we understand this guy a little bit more. In 2 Peter chapter 2, he says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he, God, condemn them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, hmm, righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man, there it is again, lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So, tormenting his righteous soul. What sort of anguish is that? is that? Is that what it looks like when then a righteous person is closely invested in and brought in with the world? In Peter's first epistle, he, he calls his audience to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Okay, so we've got war being waged against the soul. We've got a tormented soul. Now you're starting to see the condition of a righteous person's soul when they are brought in and invested in with an evil world system. It's like a plague is taking over. And then Paul grabs this colouring in book and he adds more colour to it. 
and he fills a bit more in of what it looks like for a believer in Christ who has not separated the world, not separated from the world properly and has remained invested in it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So saved, yes, but only is through fire. So if someone is dragged out of a burning building, barely surviving, are they a picture of health and, and flourishing? No. They've probably got, um, you know, burnt, ripped, ashed, black smoke-smelling clothes. They're probably, they're probably covered in burns themselves. Um, they're probably coughing from smoke inhalation. It's invested... It's deep inside them. And all they are is thankful to the one who dragged them alive out of the flames. But they are remorseful for pretty much everything else because it's all been left behind. <coughs> everything else that is completely burned up. Parky and I were talking about this verse just not, not too long ago. And we were you know, throwing a few ideas around. And... Um, what is left behind in that building when it's burnt? Think of a life, you know. Um, what about that career that you worked so hard to climb the ladder in? What about that business you spent so long building up? It's gone. And, and what, about, what about the house you spent so much money on and, and time on, all those houses? They're gone too. And then for those of us that are parents, man, this is, this is really heavy because what about the souls of our kids or family members that, that took an example from our, our blasé attitude on the things of God and didn't take God seriously and their souls are lost as well? Is that something that could have been left behind? Because we, we weren't separated from the world enough. Do you see the, the, all the different things and the pain that comes from being torn away from the world? See, the new creation that you are, you are a new creation. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation. It is at complete odds with that old flesh, that old man, that old woman that you were. Okay, The two can't mix. And you can't serve two masters. We know this. And and any attempt to do this will leave your soul tormented and plagued and warred on and afflicted. So Willowburn, come out of the world. Heed God's voice in this. Come out. Come out of the world. Like, what are you still holding on to in there? And, and at what cost? Separate. Separate. And come out from the world. Let's continue our reading in Revelation. We'll read from... Uh, verse 9. I'll continue to the rest. End of the chapter. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her 
will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses and chariots and slaves. That is human souls, human lives. See the things that are traded in this world, human lives. 14. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste, and all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all those whose trade is in the sea, stand far off and they cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, What city was like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas for this great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Now rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. For God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on earth. So when we look at this lamenting from the kings and the merchants and the sailors, and as we are looking at this, the devastated ruins of Babylon, where all their worth and wealth was tied up and this evil system as it's destroyed, all of the luxury, all of those expensive items, all of those careers just obliterated, how do you feel? Is there a little twinge of regret in you? Does it rub a nerve and make you think, I understand God's judgment had to come, but... But why did all that nice stuff have to be destroyed? What a waste. So if you do, if, if there was a little bit of a feeling of that, just consider that. And just think about what, what you really place your value on. Is it on these things in this world? Where is your real value held? 
Where is your treasure? Is there a part of you, like these kings and merchants and shipmasters, loving and just holding on to the things in this world, like the stuff or your own reputation in this world? Maybe, maybe your eyes are, are blinded by your desire for these things. Just be critical of yourself when you think about that. But ultimately, pray about it, okay? Ask God to show you what you desire and to help you to let go of anything that you're buying into that is in contrast to Him. You can even pray honestly. Like If you can't come up with the words, just, just pray honestly that, that Psalm of David you know, from Psalm 139. Like, search me, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any um, grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And then get up and celebrate that you can be free from this love of Babylon. See, the only reason any of us all can be called out from this world and rejoice and be legit happy over its downfall, okay, is because of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. The only reason, only reason any of us can be happy about it He gave Himself to buy you out of this evil world. And and if you're still in love with the world and the emptiness and all this materialism, then listen to God's call and come out of the world. Come out. There's no reason still to be in there. Get free from your sin and the material stuff and everything else. Everyone is chasing around in this crazy rat rat race of a world, okay? Just turn to Jesus renounce your old sinful life and all the crazy things that you were chasing after and just commit to following Him. Freedom. And He'll turn your sadness then into singing and dancing and you can be in God's people then, able to celebrate this evil world system Babylon as it is judged into oblivion by our all-powerful and loving God. So all all praise to our soon returning, conquering King of Kings, Jesus, as He's going to be revealed next week. Revelation 19. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.